John chapter 7, beginning in verse 10, it says, But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. Chapter 7 can briefly be divided into three parts before the feast, which we've looked at last week, with, which is verses 1 through 9, the events during the feast, um, verses 10 through 36, and then the events of the last day of the feast, which is 32 through 36. Remember how the chapter begins. It begins with the brothers' doubt about Jesus, and then it continues with the raging debate over the character of Jesus, the doctrine of Jesus, and then the work of Jesus. And so when Christians basically ask and answer the question, tell me, who do you think Jesus is? Tell me what you think about Jesus. We ask that question not just simply to satisfy curiosity, but we believe that the question of the identity of Jesus is a matter of life and death. And when we use terms like that, that it's a matter of life and death, that it's a matter of heaven and hell, that it's a matter of, of abundant life and no life at all, people look at us with astonishment or sometimes mock astonishment. Why is this so important? Well, because Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh and Jesus claimed to be the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. The Bible claims that Jesus is unique in all of creation, in all of history, and in all of religion. Arguably, there is no one who has had a greater impact on human beings. Jesus claims, and the Bible claims, that Jesus is the world's only Savior who died for our sin and who rose from the dead as proof of his claims. Is Jesus our final judge? Will Jesus return personally and judge the living and the dead. In this passage, Jesus gives his hearers an opportunity, if you will, to test his claims, to authenticate his claims, to see whether or not what he's saying is true. And he gives us, number one, a subjective test. And number two, an objective test. And then number three, a personal test. So the big question is Jesus who he claimed to be? And by the way, there are only four options. If there is a fifth or a sixth option, I'm more than happy to add it to the list. You can tell me. But here are the four options I've come up with. Number one, Jesus Christ was a liar or a deceiver. Number two, if he was not a liar or a deceiver, then he was truly insane mentally ill, unbalanced. So 
Number one, he's a liar or a deceiver. Number two, he's mentally imbalanced, that he believes his claims, but they're just simply not true. Number three, that he was a legend or at least partially a legend, that something about him is true or something about him is false, or there's a combination of truth and falseness. He's a fabrication pieced together by his disciples, part fact, part fiction, whose true identity will probably never be known. Or number four, Jesus Christ was and is who he claimed to be. God from heaven, incarnate in the flesh, the savior of mankind. I can't think of any other options. When I was preparing this study, I I did a, a, a Google search. I typed in, I hate Jesus. You'll never believe what I found. Do you realize that there's a I Hate Jesus blog where people get on and they talk about all the reasons why they hate Jesus? There's even a location called www.cafepress.com where you can purchase I Hate Jesus t-shirts. Now, in all fairness, at the same site, you can buy I Hate Hockey t-shirts. You can also get I Hate Taxes t-shirts. You can also get I hate Oprah and I hate Satan. And for a moment, I just thought, maybe I should buy that shirt. But then I decided not to. You know, this shirt that I'm wearing this morning when I first put it on, it was it was yellow. I'm thinking there's something wrong with my pH. By the way, if you Google I Hate Jesus, you'll also come to a website entitled MasterNinja.com. I wrote down a paragraph of his rants, and I quote, Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Jesus was a cool dude. I mean, sure, maybe he didn't exist. Maybe he wasn't the son of God. I personally don't know. And I frankly don't care. Jesus, as a character, had it all going for him. He healed the sick. He resurrected the dead. He made water into wine. He was a cool dude at funerals and at weddings. The man preached tolerance, goodwill, passive resistance. Sure, he occasionally talked about the end of the world and fire and brimstone. But he was rarely a downer, unquote. Have you ever heard so many contradictions in a single paragraph? Now, let's just do the math for a second. How can you be a cool dude, a fictional character, maybe the son of God, maybe not, inquisitive about his identity, ignorant about his identity, and then completely indifferent to his identity all in one breath? For some, the question of who is Jesus is a simple curiosity. For others, it's a matter of academic amusement. For others, it's a bitter barroom debate. And so look, again, the question of Jesus' character in verse 10. Read it for yourself. It says, But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Jesus delays his departure to the Feast of Tabernacles until after his brothers have left. And remember what I already told you last week, that the brothers of Jesus would rather participate in a religious celebration. They abandon Christ for religion. They abandon Jesus for participation in religious events. And I've always found that curious how so many people are loyal to, to religion and not so loyal to Jesus. By the way, this gave Jesus the opportunity to go in secret or with a certain measure of anonymity. So Jesus proceeds with caution, not wanting to have a premature confrontation with the religious rulers. And like I said, this is the Feast of Tabernacles or booths. In the Jewish vocabulary, this was called the Feast of Sukkot, or the, the feast that commemorated the wilderness wanderings where the Jews would 
pitch tents, make little booths, if you will, to celebrate the fact of their dependence upon God. And then look what it says in verse 11. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? Now here the Jews probably mean the religious leaders, but it can also mean the common observant Jew, the regular person who is in the crowd. They are searching for Jesus. Now when you read that they are searching for him and they're asking for, for him and they're asking the question, where is he? You might be thinking, well, that's a good thing, right? They're looking for Jesus. That's, that's a good thing, right? Wrong. The religious leaders are looking for Jesus for what reason? To trap him, to discredit him. The religious leaders want to arrest him. They want to try him and they want to execute him. They're looking for him for all the wrong reasons. Why? Because he's a threat. They want to discredit him. They are fearful that the people will follow Jesus. And so long as the threat hangs over them that the people will follow Jesus, they run the risk of themselves being discredited. They could lose their job. I mean, what happens if religion takes a nosedive and people start understanding that they can have a right relationship with God through Christ? Now, again... The religious leaders, in all fairness, see themselves as the guides of the people and the guardians of orthodoxy. So again, even if we give them some credit and we say they see themselves as the guardians of orthodoxy and the protector of the revelation of God given by Moses, they actually think that they are doing a God's a favor by getting rid of Jesus. And clearly the motives of the religious leaders are at best mixed and at worst corrupt. And even the motives of the crowd are at best mixed. Some people are, are looking for Jesus, but remember why they're looking for Jesus. The common people are looking for him so that they can hear him teach. Maybe they'll see a miracle. And under a really good circumstance, they themselves might be the recipient of a miracle. And sometimes that's why people come to church. Their life is falling apart. Their marriage is falling apart. Their child is sick. Their grandchild is sick. They're about to lose their job. Something horrible and terrible is happening. And so they come to church as a last ditch effort to cry out to God. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're in trouble, is it a, is it a bad thing to cry out to God? Of course it isn't. But some people, when they cry out to God, they're not interested in hearing what Jesus has to say. They're certainly not interested in repenting of their sin. They're certainly not interested in turning to him as Lord and Savior. You know, before I became a Christian, I think I can honestly say that I did not make an honest, personal inquiry into the true identity of Jesus. Before I became a Christian, I, I didn't sit there and go, I, well, I wonder who he is, and I, I wonder what that means. And, and some people are terrified about discovering the truth about Jesus. Because if you are a Christian and you discover that the truth claims of Christianity are a big, fat lie, then you can abandon your circumstances. You can give up the fraud and the sham that you're a Christian. But what if you're an unbeliever and you discover the truth claims of Jesus that Christianity is true? And now all of a sudden you're confronted with this horrible, terrible situation that if Jesus is who he says he is, you can no longer just simply ignore him. Are you seeking Jesus as Savior and Lord? Are you simply curious about him? As a Christian, are you terrified about the truth? As a non-Christian, are you terrified about the truth? Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, Truth is tough. 
it will not break like a bubble at a touch. Nay, you can kick it around all day long like a football. It will be round and full at evening. Truth can stand up under the pressure. Truth isn't so sensitive that you can pop it with just a simple inquiry. Truth will survive. And guess what? The truth about Jesus will survive. Look at verse 12. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. Now, remember what we've already seen from that word complaining in verse 12. And there was much complaining. We saw that word in chapter 6 in verb form. And remember what I told you. It's the, the Greek verb gongizome. Or in the noun form, it's gongsmos. It's one of those words that sounds like what it means. Like in our English language, remember, we have the word a bee buzzes. This word, gongizmos, refers to the vacillation of the people. This is grumbling. This is dissatisfaction. As you can imagine, they're murmuring among themselves now in a, in a voice just above a whisper. Just say to your to, your, to the person next to you, just just say, ask him, hey, tell him what your name is. My name is this. And who do you think Jesus really is? Just do it right now. A little bit louder. A little bit louder. Yeah, that's it. This is, there's murmuring. Who is he? Hey, who is he? Is Jesus a, a good man? Now, remember, here good means devout, pious, observant, true, honest, just. Moral. Is Jesus a good man? What do you think the answer is? The answer is yes, of course, of course Jesus is a good man. That's the truth. But it's not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth. Jesus is a good man, but he's more than a man. It was Napoleon who made the observation I know men, and Jesus Christ is more than a man. He's right. Jesus Christ is more than a man. There's something extraordinary about him. Some thought that Jesus was devout, but some thought he was a deceiver. In their minds, Jesus was deliberately deceiving and leading people astray. Remember, from the religious leader's standpoint, the true revelation of God given by Moses and the prophets from their perspective was being undermined. Is Jesus a fraud? Did Jesus beguile and mislead people away from Judaism? Did Jesus fabricate a whole new religion based on his own ideas? C.S. Lewis, in his famous quote from Mere Christianity, points out the choices that Jesus makes available to us. In the book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, and I quote, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the actually, the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. Now, here's the problem. Jesus doesn't talk like a madman. I'm going to ask you kind of a hard question, and you don't have to shout it out. I'm not asking for feedback. I just want to have you pause for a moment. Is there anyone in your life or is there anyone in your family who's kind of nuts? What was the first clue? 
Now, let's just be honest here. They act nuts. That's what crazy people do. They act crazy. Now, I know that some of you have husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, children. Have you ever watched your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, and they were doing something really like crazy? Now, we understand that crazy people act crazy. I read in an excerpt from Psychology Today this quote. Listen carefully. Quote, in 1993, a man was rushed to the hospital for a stab wound he inflicted on himself. Though he was depressed at the time, the act wasn't intended to end his life. It was to prove to his family that he wouldn't bleed because he was sure he was already dead. The patient had a rare disorder called Catard delusion in which people believe they are dead or even non-existent. But at the hospital, his delusion took a new turn. He now believed his family and close family members had been replaced with perfect replicas sent by the police to spy on him. These are the classic symptoms of another rare disorder called Capgrass delusion in which a person believes loved ones are actually imposters. And then the article goes on and it says, quote, in 1989, a psychiatric patient, Capgrass, in Missouri, wanted to prove that his stepfather was a robot, so he decapitated him, expecting to find batteries and microfilm in his head. Yes, this is how crazy people act. Question, does Jesus act like a crazy person? Look what it says in verse 13. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. The Sanhedrin had made no definite ruling concerning Jesus at this point in his ministry to openly declare that that Jesus was who he says he was could bring ridicule. It could bring persecution. You might even run the risk of being kicked out of the synagogue. And you've got to understand something in the Jewish culture of the first century. When you were kicked out of the synagogue, when you were no longer allowed entrance into the temple, when you could no longer participate in the life of the family, you had no family. You were ostracized by your mother, by your father, by your brothers, by your sisters, you were quite literally on your own. And that was a tough thing. Even the people who were willing to concede that Jesus was a good man were fearful of the religious authorities. And at this point, they are unwilling to risk their own safety. They are unwilling to announce belief and loyalty in Jesus. You may have found yourself in a situation exactly the same. Unwilling to announce love and loyalty to Jesus. Because you couldn't quite be certain how your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your family, your friends would react. Oh no, if people discover I'm a Jesus freak, I'm in big trouble. What will people think if they discover that I'm a Jesus freak? What will they do if they find out it's true? I love the song. I don't really care if they discover I'm a Jesus freak. There's no denying the truth. Now, I can get away with it. When people say, well, who are... I'm Gina Drace, I'm the pastor of Calvary. Oh, okay. Uh, it makes sense. You're the pastor of a church. I guess it makes sense that you would believe that the Bible is true and that Jesus is Lord. But hey, I have a life. I hope you're okay with that. Okay. Listen carefully. Look at how Jesus deals with it. The question of Jesus' doctrine. Look at verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, the feast lasted eight days. And then about the middle of the feast, Jesus goes up, look what it says, into the temple and he taught. So far in John's Gospel, we see Jesus three times. This is his third appearance in the temple. The first 
time we see Jesus in the temple and the opening of John's gospel, he cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers. The second time we see Jesus in the temple in John chapter five. Remember, he's at the pool of Bethsaida where he heals the man who's a cripple. So, so far, in Jesus in the temple, we see Jesus cleansing the temple. We see Jesus healing in the temple. And now we see Jesus teaching in the temple. You know what's interesting to me? We're not told what he taught. And I've got to tell you something. I'm curious. I want to know what he was teaching. But it doesn't tell us. It tells us elsewhere what Jesus taught about. Remember, I've already mentioned the Sermon on the Mount. Now, again, when you read Jesus' teaching, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, when you read its content, the highest ethical teaching ever given, even by his critics, does he sound like a crazy man? Does he sound deluded? Even Jesus' critics comment on his high moral character. His enemies couldn't convict him of sin. No one convicted him of dishonesty or of deceit. And you know what's interesting to me? He's teaching in the temple and no one says, listen to what he's saying, how he's pointing us to God, how we should repent of our sins, how we should trust him as Lord. Look what it says in verse 15. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Instead of saying, ooh, listen to what he's saying, they're saying, you know, how, how do you explain that this poor, itinerant, ignorant carpenter from Nazareth can expound the scriptures the way he's expounding them. By the way, even poor Jews were taught to read and recite the scriptures. This particular verse isn't saying that Jesus was illiterate. Poor Jews were taught to read, not necessarily to write. Do you understand what they're saying? The people are amazed at Jesus' level of scholarship based on the fact that he has no formal training. And since he has no formal training, he has no formal credentials. And because he has no formal training, no formal credentials, what gives him the right to teach? Do you realize in the 15th century, John Bunyan was placed in prison because he didn't have a license to preach the gospel? Do you realize arguably the most influential preacher who lived in the 19th century was a was a young man named Charles Haddon Spurgeon who becomes the pastor of Metropolitan Temple at the age of 19. He never goes to a seminary. He never gets a degree and has the most profound preaching ministry in the history of Britain. My own friend, my, my friend Greg Laurie became the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Riverside at the age of 19. He started a Bible study and a hundred kids showed up, then 200, then 500. And when 500 kids showed up, Pastor Chuck said, well, maybe God's calling you to be a Bible teacher. Chuck, I have no training. I have no education. And then a thousand people show up. And then 2,000 and 5,000 people show up. He has no formal training. He's never sat at the feet of a recognized rabbi. This man, a mere carpenter's son, uneducated, unlearned. What gives him the right to set himself up as a great teacher? John Wesley was once approached by a person who said, You know, God don't need no education. And John Wesley said, You're exactly right. God doesn't need an education. But God doesn't need your ignorance either. Are we anti-seminary? Are we anti-training? Are we anti-intellectual? We are not. But we believe a person's ministry will be marked by fruit. And a person who is gifted by God and called by God and equipped by God and used by God can do it with formal education or no formal education. About three of my friends have 
three of the largest churches in America. None of them went to seminary. But the fact that they didn't go to seminary didn't mean that they didn't work hard, pray hard, and submit themselves in order to try to the best of their ability to impart the meaning of the Word of God. I want you to think about what's happening in this passage. The ministry and the message of Jesus is now coming under scrutiny. Is Jesus simply a good man? Is Jesus a false teacher? Is Jesus deceived or deceiving? Is Jesus an uneducated, insignificant, itinerant preacher from the backwaters of Galilee? And how does he respond to his critic? Again, just like when people mock Jesus, he uses it as an opportunity to teach them. Jesus begins by telling the people the source of his message. His teaching, his doctrine isn't from himself, but rather from God. And second, Jesus claims to be sent by God. He's an ambassador or a representative of God. And since his message is from God and the teaching has its source in God, what he's claiming to be is a true messenger of God. Look what it says in verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine or my teaching is not Mine, but his who sent me. Question. Where did Jesus' teaching come from? Go ahead. This is the time you can talk. Pretend we're like we're a Pentecostal church and it's okay to talk with me. Where did his teaching come from? From God. That's exactly right. He is claiming that his teaching comes from God. Could he have made it up? Did he invent this? Listen, remember in chapter 6, verse 38, if you look back just one chapter, in chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. When Jesus claims to come from heaven, he claims to be on personal, intimate terms with the person who sent him. Later, in chapter 7, verse 29, if you just go ahead a little bit, in verse 29 it says, But I know him, for I am from him. He has sent me. And then if you look at John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. In verse 17, chapter 7, verse 17, it says, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. I need to make this as simple as I possibly can for you. In verse 17, when he says, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. Now we come to the tests. The subjective test, the objective test, and the personal test. As a matter of fact, in verse 18, in the text, look what it says. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Okay, I want to help you understand this. The first subjective test in verse 17 if anyone wills to do his will, whose will? God's will. He shall know concerning the teaching or the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. Listen carefully. Here's what Jesus is saying. I want you to listen carefully to what God is saying in his revelation, the word of God. Here's what Jesus is saying. Listen carefully to everything that God has said up till now. In Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in Joshua, in Judges, in First and Second Kings, in First and Second Chronicles. Listen carefully to what Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel have written. Listen carefully to everything that God has said from the beginning to the end. Here's what he's saying. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. Hard, 
And as you listen carefully to what God has said, and you listen hard to what God has said, then I want you to think about what I'm telling you. I want you to think about what I'm telling you in light of everything that God has said. So the first is a subjective test. The test is inward and moral. How can a person know that what Jesus says is true? Here's Jesus' answer. Listen to what God says and then do what he says. Pretty simple, huh? Listen to what God says and then do what he says. What has God said? That he created human beings, placed them in a garden. They rebelled and disobeyed against him. That he would send a savior. That the savior would be born from the tribe of Judah, from the lineage of David. That a Savior would come and He would be born in Bethlehem and He would say the most amazing things that have ever been said and He would do the most amazing things that He would ever, that you can imagine. Read the book of Isaiah. Look at the prophecies in the book of Daniel. Listen to what He's saying. If anyone wills to do His will, a willingness to do what God says, the person who knows God, the person who has more than just a casual thought about God, but the person who really believes that there really is a God and that God has really revealed Himself, that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him, if you do that and you listen to what Jesus says, you're going to come to the conclusion that what He's saying is true. Number two, He gives an objective test. In verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Here's what he's saying. Do the words that Jesus speak promote the glory of God. Now, remember what God's glory is. It's his weight. It's the substance of God. When a person is sent by another person and winds up speaking only about themselves, then chances are... They're either misrepresenting the person who sent them, or they have their own agenda. Let me give you an awful illustration. Imagine the President of the United States sends the Secretary of State to Israel and says to the Secretary of State, Look, I want you to tell the Israeli government, I don't blame you for wanting to protect yourself. If Hamas and Hezbollah are lobbing rockets at you, killing your wife, killing your children, killing you, killing you, killing you, guess what? I'm from Texas. And when a person pulls a gun on you and threatens to kill your family, you have the right to protect yourself. So here's what I want you to tell them. If someone is trying to kill you and everyone in your family, we want you to know as the United States government, it's okay to protect yourself. Now imagine the Secretary of State goes to the Israeli government and says, I come here from the President of the United States. And he says that no matter how many rockets they send to you, do nothing. Smile. Say, hey, look, we have a problem. We have a misunderstanding. I I know that you're sending rockets. You're killing our family. You're killing our friends. And, hey, we know that you're upset with us. And... um, And so we want to sit down and we want to talk about it. Certainly in in a perfect world, we don't want you to try and kill us anymore, but we're not going to do anything about it. Is she representing or misrepresenting the president? I've gone to this extraordinary illustration to let you know that when Jesus says that he comes from God, that he comes with a message from God, that he's not misrepresenting the message of God. As a matter of fact, in verse 4, he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. In chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In John chapter 18, verse 37, when Jesus stands before Pilate and Pilate questions Jesus and he says, are you a king? Jesus answers, you say rightly, I am a king for this cause. I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. 
Jesus doesn't simply claim to tell the truth. He claims that he is the truth. And so there's a personal test. The personal test that he gives is in verse 19. Look what it says. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why are you seeking to kill me? And I want you to think carefully. A person can use the law to tell if Jesus Christ is telling the truth. When you measure yourself by God's revelation and God's standard and God's law, you discover something that you fail the test. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? At this point, why didn't someone say, I keep the law? I'm an observant Jew. I do what the law tells me to do. Really? What does the law tell you to do? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you do that every day perfectly? Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever broken the law? The Bible says all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We don't keep the law. We stand in need of God's forgiveness. Jesus reminds them that God gave them the law, but you have to understand something. God didn't just give them the law. God also expected them to obey the law. He gave them the law with the expectation of obedience, and they failed. No wonder Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Curse is everyone who does not continue in the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The right response should have been, none of us keeps the law and we are in great need of a Savior. But look what they say. Because Jesus says, why are you seeking to kill me? And the people said, have you been smoking crack, Jesus? Uh, It's a loose translation. It doesn't really say, have you been smoking crack, Jesus? It does say, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. They're in effect saying, oh, Jesus, you're all paranoid. No one's really out to get you. Remember the bumper sticker that says, it's not paranoia if they really are out to get you. They really are out to get him. The religious leaders want him dead. And we already know why. The crowd, in effect, is suggesting that Jesus is being controlled by a demon. Minimum that he's paranoid. Maximum that he might be being controlled by an evil spirit. Jesus marveled. Jesus answered and said, I did one work. And you all marvel. Now remember what he said. You go about opposing me. You stand in opposition to me. You've even gone so far as attempt to kill me. Jesus answered and said, I did one work and you all marveled. Now remember what happened. He healed on the Sabbath day. Remember in John chapter 5, a crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. This was considered a work. And working on the Sabbath day was strictly forbidden. It was a serious offense on the mind of the Jew. So serious that you could and should be put to death. How could a good man who is not a deceiver, a man who is not evil, a man who is not demon possessed, wind up doing what's good? Now listen to what Jesus is saying in verse 22. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it's of Moses, but of the fathers, and you on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. When a child was born, on the eighth day after the birth of the child, the child would be circumcised as a sign, a tribute, if you will, of his role and relationship, his covenant to the God of Israel. And sometimes that meant that the child was circumcised on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus, in verse 23, says, If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I've made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? The Greek literally says, made a whole man well. This could be translated 
made an entire human being well or for the healing of the whole person. Jesus is basically asking them to judge, not simply by appearance, but by the facts. In other words, when the religious leaders circumcise a child in cooperation of the revelation of God given in the Scripture, are they doing a good thing or are they doing a bad thing? Go ahead. They're doing a good thing. Now, listen carefully. Jesus is in effect saying this. Look at what I did. I made a man whole. I want you to look at this realistically. I want you to look at it honestly. I want you to look at it objectively. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Does this sound like something an evil person would do? Does this sound like something a wicked person would do? Does this sound like something a deluded person would do? Does this sound like something a demonically possessed person would do? And then remember what it says. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You know what he's making reference to? Remember the story of Samuel when he goes to pick a a, a successor to Saul. And remember, he goes to David's brothers and he goes down the laundry list. And here's David's oldest brother. And he is tall and he is handsome and he is good looking and he is strong. Picture Tom Selleck meets Brad Pitt, six foot six. And you're going, that's the guy. And the Lord says, you're judging on the outside. I have somebody else in mind. I'm looking on the inside and I'm looking on the heart. Judge a righteous judgment. So without denying his teaching, Jesus makes himself the issue. He confirms it with observable miracles. He conquers death. Now, I want you to think carefully for just a moment. Number one, does Jesus fit the profile of a deceiver or a liar? No. Does Jesus fit the profile of a person who's psychotic or deluded? Not really. Does it make sense that Jesus is the invention of his well-meaning disciples who completely got it wrong? For those of you who are familiar with Peter, James, and John, do any of them seem like Agatha Christie to you? Do any of them seem to have the mental, intellectual, literary ability to create somebody like Jesus? I don't think so. The Encyclopedia Britannica, of all places, points this out. These independent non-Christian accounts prove that in ancient times, even the opponents of Christianity never doubted the historicity of Jesus, which was disputed for the first time and on inadequate grounds by several authors at the end of the 18th, the 19th, and the 20th centuries. It was Encyclopedia Britannica's way of saying nobody doubted the reality of a real Jesus up until that point. The theory requires that the disciples falsely invented the teachings of Jesus and then lied about his resurrection. And they invented his teachings and they lied about his resurrection. Or they didn't. The simplest answer seems to be the most satisfying one. Jesus is who he claims to be. No wonder C.S. Lewis wrote, and I quote again, Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a really great human teacher. He never left that option open to us. He never intended to leave that option open to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that there are people who are going to hear what I'm saying 
and quite literally it will go in one ear and out the other. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter to them that Jesus is a deceiver or a liar or psychotic or deluded or that Jesus is the fabrication of well-meaning disciples deluded themselves. But Lord, there really is no more important issue. Who is Jesus? People question his character and they find him pure. They question his teaching and there has never been greater teaching ever uttered by human lips. They question his work. But who else can compare with the miracles of Jesus? Lord, I pray for that person who finds themselves filled with doubt. Lord, I pray that they would come to know and love and trust Jesus fully and finally. Heavenly Father, I pray that they would set aside that fear and that prejudice and that they would come to grips with the fact that you love them so much and that you want to forgive them and heal them and have a right relationship and friendship with them. Lord, I pray that they would have the courage to admit that Jesus is who he says he is and that they would be willing to abandon their sin, abandon their unbelief and embrace Jesus fully and finally as Lord and Savior. Heavenly Father, I pray that they would pray this simple prayer. Dear God, please forgive me. Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ is both King and Lord and Savior. That He is who He says He is and that He died on the cross for my sin and He rose from the dead for my justification and that He's alive right now and because He's alive right now, He can wash me and cleanse me and send the Holy Spirit to live inside of me so that I can live a life that's honoring and pleasing to You. Lord, give me the courage to face the truth about myself and the truth about Jesus and the truth about eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.